be seated. Good morning. Hey, if you're a guest, if you don't mind, there's a Connect card in the seat back that's in front of you. If you would take that and fill it out for us, we would greatly appreciate that. You can fill that out and put a prayer request, and our elders and our staff will make sure that we are praying for you uh, consistently. We'd also love to hear when uh, God answers those prayers. And so you can put like, hey, you guys have been praying for this, and the Lord answered, and here's how he did that. Uh, One quick thing. This past Wednesday night, uh, uh, we added a sister in Christ to the church family. Janice Schaefer was baptized into Christ right here uh, Wednesday evening, and so we can celebrate that together. If you see her, go ahead and congratulate her, give her a hug. Uh, It was pretty neat uh, time with her entire discipleship group surrounding her for that. So we're excited for that. Hey, I want to start us out with a phrase that's going to kind of drive where we're going this morning. And that phrase is, discipleship is doing what Jesus would do if he were you. Doing what Jesus would do if he were you. As we continue in this series in the book of Philippians, we're coming to a text that's going to deal with an issue that I think is, is one of the most difficult struggles that we as human beings face in our lifetimes. You see, this morning, the text that we're studying is going to put something between us. It's going to, it's going to show us something that's inside of each of us that affects all of our relationships, all of our relationships. I've sat with a lot of couples and done a lot of premarital counseling. As, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm getting ready to start doing premarital counseling with my 34th couple, 34 different couples uh, doing premarital counseling. And I've sat with other couples doing marriage counseling and individuals. And I can tell you from my own experience that the issue that the text brings up today is the number one issue that creates friction and even division inside of our relationships. I think this particular issue is also pretty deceptive because it tells you that unless you live this way, you're not actually going to be taken care of and loved and valued. But we see throughout Scripture, and particularly in the passage, the verses that we're going to study this morning, that the Bible is pretty adamantly opposed to this way of living. What we're going to be talking about today is self-centeredness. This idea that you need to look out for yourself and your own needs. That you need to, first of all, look out for what you need, what you want, what you even maybe deserve, over and above the needs and and what other people deserve around you. Here's the thing, every single one of us, this is going to apply to every single person in the room because we are all naturally self-centered people. We are. Self-centeredness comes as naturally to us as breathing. I heard one preacher say, "Uh, here's how you can test that. What's the first thing you look for when you are looking at a group photo? You look for yourself and you determine whether or not it's a good picture based on how you look in said group picture. You see, consistently, we're always looking out for ourselves. When you think about life, the first person's need that you're, you're concerned with or your own. When you wake up in the morning, more often than not, and, and don't feel bad or feel bad, and then we'll pick you back up here in a little while. Uh, the first thing we think about is what I need to do, what I'm going to wear, who I need to call, what email I need to respond to, what I need to get done. We naturally think about ourselves before we think about other people. You might even be thinking, well, not me. I don't do that. Well, you just did. <laughs> You see, naturally, we're always thinking about ourselves. We're always putting ourselves first. And so this passage that we're going to study today, it's going to show us that while this comes instinctively to us, it kills our relationships. One of the books I was reading this past week said that they concluded that the number one cause of of division in a marriage relationship is self-centeredness. I would add to that the number one cause of division in any relationship you have, your friendships, uh, with your children as you're parenting them, with your parents as you're being parented by them, All of your relationships, the number one 
caution would be self-centeredness because it can cause so much division. And you've seen this throughout your life. I've seen it all through my life and all of my relationships. I've seen this in my own home. I mean, Sarah is so self-centered. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> just wanted to make sure you're with me. Uh, anybody got a couch? <laughs> now, you've felt this in your life. You've seen this over and over again. But here's the thing. Self-centeredness is one of those things that's really hard to see in yourself, but really easy for other people to see in you. It shows itself in your relationships consistently over and over and over again. There are two things in my own life that I've encountered that if the Lord has used really to help me in, in making sure that self-centeredness is maybe kept under control or at least revealed to me so that he can then discipline me in it and, and work through it. Uh, the first is having children. The first thing that, that's helped me is having kids. Now, you might have thought I was going to say when I got married, but here's the thing that happens that I've noticed, and if you're like me or willing to admit you're like me in this, is that when we get married, we're supposed to have somebody whose interests we're looking out for more than our own. But what happens is we naturally begin to hijack that relationship. And so now, instead of having only one person who's always focused on my needs, I now have two people who are always going to be focused on my needs until you have children. See, when you have kids, there's nothing you can do. There's no way that your child is going to think about your needs above their own. They don't come out of the womb crying about your needs. They don't come out of the womb crying about what you need and what you're concerned about. But it would be really nice, wouldn't it? If at 2 o'clock in the morning you went walking into their room and they are crying their head off and you go up to the crib and you say, what's wrong? And they look up and say, Dad, I can just see the stress on your face. Work is really weighing on you and it's really bugging me. Is there anything I can do to help you, Dad? I just, what can I pray for, Dad? No kid's ever going to do that <laughs> because a kid is not worried. And what happens is you're forced, you're forced to begin thinking about their needs over and above your own. See, the other thing in my life that's helped is when I actually take the time or I allow people in my life to tell me to slow down enough to really sit back and think about and meditate on the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did. And when I can really think about not just the, the big picture of the gospel, but some of the details, when I can reflect on how Jesus lived his life, his everyday life, I mean, the gospel writers really give us a, a good glimpse into how he conducted himself. You can watch how he interacted with people and what he taught or some of the things he said, like, I came here to serve and not to be served and to give my life as a ransom for many. See, when I can sit back and really think about the life that Jesus lived, it begins to reveal in my heart how I'm not living up to that, how I really do need to begin to consider other people as a little bit more important than myself. I had a mentor one time telling me, Rob, go to bed every night exhausted because you've been serving other people every day. And then wake up the next morning and do it again every day for the rest of your life. And when you look back, that'll be a life with little to no regret. Just serve other people. See, I think this is the life that the Apostle Paul is trying to describe to the church at Philippi. His friends, this group of believers that would have gathered like this and listened to this letter read out loud. If you remember last week, as we concluded chapter 1 in Philippians, Paul ended chapter 1 by warning the Christians in Philippi about what could happen from the outside. And he warned them to stand their ground, to stand firm, and to strive together forward in the mission because there was opposition that would be coming from the outside, mainly for them. Some of the teaching and the culture that surrounded them was going to come. And, and Satan would use that culture, use that teaching to create division as it attacked the church. 
And he said, no, you need to maintain your unity in the face of opposition that would come from the outside and stand firm and strive together and move forward because that creates a unity that the enemy cannot get through. But Paul's fully aware, though, that in the face of adversity, fear and selfishness tend to kind of rule. And so we talked about last week as we concluded chapter one that your character is always revealed by your conduct. Your conduct will always reveal your character. And so staying united with brothers and sisters in Christ protects us from what the enemy's trying to do from the outside. During the Revolutionary War, Benjamin Franklin is cited as saying, we must all hang together or assuredly we will hang separately. And I think Paul might have resonated with that. Like, hey, unity is so important or you're going to be doomed. Now, Paul also understood this, that not every enemy comes from without. That oftentimes, one of the greatest enemies to the church and to unity in the church, and I would add to every relationship that you have in your life, comes from within. It's a division that is sparked from within. It's prima donnas and power grabs and prestige-seeking believers that tend to weaken the body of Christ from within. Paul, being fully aware of that, understands that some relationships from within the church were having trouble in Philippi. Epaphroditus would have told him there's some friction going on. And Paul knew that if we don't handle this, it's only going to get worse. It's like a cancer that grows inside the body and kills the church. And so we have to put away divisiveness. So the apostle Paul begins to teach them. He begins to lay out. He pulls the rug out from under their prevailing honor-based culture. And this, I've earned this, or I deserve this, or you should treat me this way culture. He pulls the rug out from under it. He pulls out all the punches and describing to them that we are called to live a life of humility in a world that's focused on being self-centered. And the implications on every one of our relationships is pretty incredible. But Paul's main focus, and I hope you see this in these just four short verses we're going to study is to bring their attention and their focus to the gospel. And this is why I believe, and I'll state this forever, I believe that the number one cure to our problems in life is the gospel message. Now, I do think that there are plenty of other practices and principles and programs that you can be a part of, but apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're incomplete because our deepest problem is not our self-centered actions. It is a sick heart. We have a self-centered heart that leads us to make self-centered decisions. And so the cure for that is not to tell you to work harder or to do more, or to change your decision-making. Because we all know in our relationships that that can help for a little while, but eventually it fades. Why? Because we're not addressing the heart of the issue. The Apostle Paul is saying, hey, you, you can't just do more, work harder. You can't just try your best to treat people better. You can't just practice all these personal self-disciplines and expect it to get you through because your heart is sick. And so the number one solution is to get your heart realigned with the message of the gospel. Because you don't need new behaviors, you need a new heart. And so that's where Paul's focus is going to be as we pick up in Philippians chapter 2. And he addresses the danger of internal opposition within the church. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 is where we're going to start this morning. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit... Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, just in two verses, we've got a lot to walk through. And so if you're someone who takes notes, this might be your favorite part. We're going to walk through some of these descriptors. Notice where he starts. He said, if there is any encouragement, what? Look, you're with me when I joke about my wife, but you're not when I'm <laughs> quoting scripture. <laughs> if there's any encouragement in Christ, right? 
If there's any, he starts with in Christ because he knows the benefits of being in Christ are what are going to get you through this. This is where his focus is going. Outside of Christ, our relationships will, ha- will experience pain and suffering because we're left to our own power, our own control, our own ability to try to fix this uh, sick heart that we, no matter how hard we try, can't seem quite to get it right. This is why we go through relationships. This is why we go through friendships. This is why we hold grudges and we fail to forgive people when we rely on our own strength. But Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and really, every time you see the word if, it should be since. What he's trying to get at here is not if there's any encouragement. He says, since you have encouragement from being in Christ. What he's trying to say is, you need to remember that if you're in Christ, you have this encouragement that's given to you, even when you don't experience encouragement from other people. That he's here to encourage you with the message that there's always hope, no matter what you're experiencing in your life. So he says, encouragement in Christ. He moves on. He says, the second thing is this. If there's any, since there is also comfort from his love. Remember that he's focusing, his focus on comfort is coming from knowing Jesus. It's because I'm in Christ. Because that means that I can experience this comfort, this warm blanket on my soul, if you will. That no matter how everything else is going in my life, I can still find comfort in Christ. I can still be comforted by the fact that he thought I was worth dying for. I can be comforted by the fact that he thought I was worthy of allowing his Holy Spirit to live inside of me. That he thinks that I can have a life and have it to the fullest even when everyone around me doesn't seem to believe that. Even when my friendships and my relationships, my marriage and my parenting seem, all these relationships and and my brothers and sisters in Christ don't seem to be getting my back. And I just feel uncomfortable even when I come to church. I know that in the midst of all of that, I can still be comforted by the truth of Jesus. You see, this has a profound impact. This is extremely important for us to remember. We're not trying to earn our love and our value. We're not trying to overcome something to prove to other people that I'm worth loving. I sat with someone this past week and that was the primary message I'm trying to get through to them is stop trying to earn love and value. You have it, you're in Christ. He loves you and he values you even when you don't feel loved and valued from the people that are around you. You are still loved. You're still valued when you are in Christ. So he says, since you can be comforted by his love, he moves on. He says, in addition to that, if there's any participation in the spirit, any participate, any allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life, since, since, since there is participation in the spirit. So here, here's the thing about the comfort and the love. You, you can't offer someone what you don't have. So if you're not in Christ, you've not experienced this deep encouragement, this deep comfort. So how can you be expected to give that to somebody else? So naturally, we would expect that outside of Christ, there's going to be divisiveness and some friction and some tension in your relationships. But inside Christ, he says, when you've received that, and here's the thing I would add to that, you have to continually receive it. It's not a one-time thing. This is an ongoing relationship you have with Jesus where you consistently, now many of us, if I were to say, hey, how often are you reading your Bible? You might think, well, there's the preacher again telling me I have to read my Bible just to make, what you're doing in that moment is you're saying, I have to read my Bible in order for God to love me. That's not where we're going. But when I sit with someone and I start to ask them about their Bible reading habits, what I'm getting at is how are you allowing Christ to fill your soul? Because that's the first thing we want to address. Are you receiving what you're trying your hardest to then give to other people? Because if you're not receiving comfort and you're not receiving love, then how can we expect that you're going to be good at giving it? And even Christians lose sight of the fact that Christ is an encouragement and a source of comfort in their life. 
Well, how does it do that? Well, how does he do that? Well, he does that with, through your participation in the Holy Spirit. One of the Spirit's primary jobs, one of the Spirit's primary jobs in Scripture is to bring to life the Word of God in your heart. And Jesus said in John 16 that the Spirit would remind you continually of what he had said. And I don't know about you, but the place when I can slow down and get the, the deepest sense of encouragement and comfort in my life is when I can sit and think about Jesus, what he said, what he went and did for me, how he's encouraged me. And, and this is what the Holy Spirit does in our moments of weakness. He brings God's word to life. And he says, you need to allow the Holy Spirit to continue to work. Since there is participation in the Spirit in the church. Now, the Bible also is very clear. Paul told the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 4, and he told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, look, you can interact with the Holy Spirit in a negative way too. To the Ephesians, he said that you can actually stop the Holy Spirit from where you can grieve the Holy Spirit through the way that you're living your life. To the Thessalonians, he says, you can quench the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can actually slow it down. And So look, since there is participation in the Spirit, allowing the Spirit to work, Paul says, then unity is possible. But unity is only possible when we allow the Holy Spirit to work. And continually remind us that in Christ I am encouraged. In Christ I am comforted. So look, when you're tempted to gossip in the church... I heard, I showed a video to the staff this past week. They said in the video, he was talking about the, the power of our speech and, and he was preaching out of James. And he said, hey, you know what gossip and flattery are? Gossip's what you would say, uh, you would never say to someone's face, but you would say behind their back. Flattery is what you would say to their face, but you'd never say behind their back. See, see when that temptation sits in to speak of people that way, or, or what about when it's really hard for us to forgive somebody? You ever been there? When someone has done wrong to you, and it is so hard for me to offer forgiveness to other people, I think what Paul is saying is if we would slow down and ask ourselves, when those temptations come our way, where is the source of my strength in this moment? Is it in my reaction to these things? Or is it coming from a place of meditating on the word of God? He moves on. He says, now, since there's affection and sympathy from Christ. And this one's a little bit easier to explain. Both of these emotions or both of these feelings, both affection and sympathy, require that I don't think about myself in order to feel them. Just logically, think about this. In order for me to feel affection towards someone else, in that moment, I'm not thinking about myself. In order for me to feel sympathy toward another person, in that moment, I'm not thinking about me. Both of these emotions require that in that moment, I'm not thinking about me. We can only offer what we've received. If you have re received the affection of Christ continually and the sympathy of Jesus, and think about this, in that moment, he's thinking about you. He's thinking about your needs and how much he loves you and the uniqueness that you bring to the kingdom of God and the value and the giftedness that he's given you and the vision and the plan that he has for your life and that it creates an affection and a sympathy for you in him. When we receive that from him, then we can offer it freely to other people. Paul says, when you combine all of this, when this begins to take place, you have this incredible unity that he says is the source of his greatest joy. Think about that. What's the source of your greatest joy? He says, make my joy complete because when the church is united, 
when the relationships are strong, when people are having their needs met and there's not gossip and slander and hypocrisy and division, when everybody's coming together because, why? Because first they're receiving it from Jesus. They're not manufacturing this on their own. They're not just saying, I'm a great leader so I can power through this. They're stopping long enough to receive from Jesus what they then freely give to one another. That is a powerful thing when you see it. When we come into this place on a Sunday morning and we, we see each other, it's that excitement in you when you drive to church on Sunday morning. The man, I get to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I have memories and I've got all these incredible moments that we've walked through together. And, and, and I, during the week, yes, even during the week, I've paused long enough to receive from Christ what I want to walk in here on Sunday morning and give to my brothers and sisters. Paul says that's an incredible thing. And he says, that's not only an incredible thing, that's what you're called to do. And remember, discipleship, it's doing what Jesus would do if he were you. Discipleship is just doing what Jesus would do if he were you. If Jesus was in my position right now, well, how would he respond to this? This is how I need to respond. That's discipleship. And even in that moment, you're not thinking about yourself. Now, Paul shifts gears here, and he, be, he begins to kind of say, okay, so this is what's kind of going wrong, guys. This is what you need to remember, and then this is how it's kind of lived out. Verse Three, he says, now, if this is taking place, here's how you'll live. You will do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, you will count others more significant than yourselves. He says, friends, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a powerful phrase here. This selfish ambition, that's your motivation. I'm motivated for my own personal gain. But what it's connected to there, that vain conceit, is a Greek word, kenodoxia. I don't think I'm pronouncing it right, but I sounded confident, okay? That's how you do it. I actually struggled all week trying to pronounce that. <laughs> but the word is it's really important. Kenosis and doxa. Kenosis means to empty oneself. Doxa means glory. It means your glory empty. It means you feel... Uh, Disvalued. You don't feel valued at all. You don't feel worthy. You don't feel important. So what do you do when you're glory empty? You go looking for it in any place you can get. You do it in manipulating. You do it in power plays. You do it in gossip. You do it in approval. You do it in, in compromising your values to make sure other people see you. You do it in making poor decisions. You do it in any way you possibly can because we were created to feel valued, to feel comforted, to feel encouraged. And when we don't feel that and we don't have it, we will look everywhere else that we can, and that's vain conceit. And what happens is now your motivation, your ambition begins to shift. And all of your decision-making is all about yourself. He says what sinks in in that moment is what the Bible would call pride. It's pride. I deserve this. I can get this. I can earn this. I'm capable of this. I'm accomplished. I can achieve this. And it's in that vain conceit, that pride, that our life begins to fall apart. Our relationships begin to struggle. Our decision-making gets poorer and poorer. Now, human pride is just this religious sense of arrogance. It's a refusal to let God be God. It's a refusal to receive from him what he freely wants to give to you so that you can give it to other people. And you say, I'll find that somewhere else. And then you struggle. Paul says, don't live that way. Instead, but in humility... It's the opposite of living that way. In humility, consider the needs of other people more important than yourselves. Don't live like a glory hog. That's what he's saying. Don't let pride get the best of you. John Stott said this. He said, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Pride our greatest enemy, humility our greatest friend. And I think, if I'm honest with you, 
And Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 is perhaps the hardest verse in the Bible to live out because, I don't know if you're like me, but I often find myself even serving to feel good. Even in serving other people, it's often because it feels so good or it will tell a great story. It's not in that moment I look at this person and truly consider that their needs are more important than mine. I struggle with that. Let me illustrate it for you this way. I'm going to be pretty vulnerable with you. Um, a recent example, if you've ever hung out with me or spent some time with me, you will learn through that experience that I have a very weak stomach when it comes to other people getting sick. I don't deal well with vomit in particular, uh, to be blunt. I'm not good with it to the point that when I did student ministry here at New Hope, we were on a youth trip one time and uh, the students stayed in one part of the, the boys stayed in one part and the girls stayed in the other. And it's the middle of the night. And one of the high school guys says, Rob, I don't feel, didn't even finish a sentence. Uh, middle of the night, right next to my bed and next to his bed. It was really bad. I couldn't handle it. So I called one of the female sponsors on the other side of the building in the middle of the night, and I told her, I need your help, or this will stay here all night, and that won't be good for anybody, and, and I need you. Please do this. They said, are you kidding me? I said, I'm really not kidding you. I can't do it, and they came in the middle of the night and uh, cleaned that up for me, and I'm not proud of that, okay? Um, I'm not. That was a weak moment in my life. So as it should be this week, while writing this sermon and coming up with this material, guess what happened in our home? Our two-year-old uh, got really sick one night, and he vomited not once, but four times. And typically, my response would have been to sleep downstairs and let mom be super mom, because that's what she is. That's strike two in one sermon. Uh, but honestly, genuinely, my participation in the spirit this week led the Holy Spirit to put this on the front of my mind in that moment, in the middle of the night. And so I stayed up all night cleaning up vomit, doing what I was powerless to do in myself because of what God had done through me in that moment, using his word and reminding me this is a life of service. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, the crown that we wear in a relationship is first and foremost one of thorns. I think he's right. See, the Apostle Paul, he'll close out here with kind of throwing them a bone. He says this. He says, look out not only for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He says, look, you can still take care of yourself. You look out for your own interests. You make sure you're in a good spot so that you can help other people. The, the caution here, though, is staying in a perpetual state of making sure that I'm healthy. Look, we all need to come out of the race and visit the pit every once in a while. But we need the kind of pit crew that's going to send us back out into the race, not let us sit and continually focus on ourselves. And the Apostle Paul says, yeah, make sure you're good, but you being good is for the benefit of others. If you remember, you studied the life of Jesus. He consistently went out into the wilderness, but he always came out of the wilderness. He always went away and retreated to be alone, but he always showed back up on the scene ready and filled up, prepared to serve other people. And he has called us to do the same thing because discipleship at its core is doing what Jesus would do if he were you. Now, as we close out, th this story, this, this passage always brings to mind a story. And it's not mine. It's a story of uh, another preacher that he shared in a sermon that I heard once. I just always remember it. And I, I think I've shared it here before, but uh, forgive me for that. It just brings home 
what this passage is illustrating it comes from a guy named John Weiss. John tells a story of when his first child was born. And, he, you know, they're excited, and they're, they're at 26 weeks. And she goes in for a routine checkup, his wife does, and she calls him on his way home from work, says, hey, you need to get to the hospital. They're concerned about something. And so he shows up at the hospital. He thinks, hey, it's just kind of a false alarm, no big deal. But through a series of meetings, the doctor comes in, and he says at one point, when the doctor came in, he just knew something was wrong. And they said, hey, we've got to deliver this baby tonight. So he stops. And he goes and he sits in a room. He sits down and he, he sings a song in my mind that re-energized his heart to participate in the work of the Spirit. The surgeon then comes in and says, hey, can I pray with you? How often does that happen? So he prays with the surgeon. And they go on and the baby's delivered and they spent the next 12 weeks in the neonatal intensive care unit praying over their little girl. She's really healthy today. She made it through. But the part of the story that gets me every time is that because of him and his wife spending 12 weeks in the neonatal intensive care unit, 22 doctors and nurses were baptized into Christ. How do you do that? How do you, how do you hang out in a neonatal intensive care unit focused on the worst situation you can be in, but you're so focused on the needs of everybody else around you. How do you do that? How did 22 doctors and nurses get baptized in the Christ because this family was positioned by God to be in this place? Because he knew he could trust them to consider the needs of other people more important than their own. May it be said of us, may it be said of us as a church, that we consider the needs of other people more important than our own. Maybe said of your marriage, of your family, of your friendships, that we considered the needs of one another as more important than our own. And we remembered that discipleship is simply doing what Jesus would do if he were you. Let's pray.